Well, we come now to the second part dealing with biblical hermeneutics, and we've been looking at the the triad of hermeneutics, what we looked at in terms of the threefold nature of biblical hermeneutics. We talked about the fact that if biblical hermeneutics were to be a stool with three legs, then in those three categories, we have represented the historical aspect of hermeneutics, and we looked at some of that. We looked at hermeneutics, the history of hermeneutics, we, or, or, or actually the, the historical component in, in hermeneutics. And what that dealt with was specifically the history that surrounds the, the various books of the Bible. You take into account the historical background of biblical books. And that's what we mean by the historical component of biblical hermeneutics, the historical leg of this triad. And the historical component is really important because there you learn to examine what is the history of that book? What were, what was, what was happening uh, during uh, the time that this book was uh, being written, during the time that this book was being uh, composed? What was happening in the life of the author, the life of the audience? What was going on in the culture? What was the social and what was the economic situation of that culture? What was Roman or Greco-Roman life like during the, the, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul? That is one example that we could, that we could ask, that we can think about, that we can talk about. Another maybe example in the New Testament would be the Gospels and understand what is the, the history of the Jewish people at this time? What is going on as, as um, Matthew uh, begins his account? What is the history behind uh, the time of John the Baptist, let's say? What are the historical developments that have led up to that time in history? What, what is going on in the intertestamental, intertestamental period of time? Uh, where really there is no revelation given to God's people. And uh, these are the types of questions that we're asking historically of any book of the Bible. And again, when you look at the historical background of a book of the Bible, let's say 1 Corinthians, for example, is, is, is a very... Um, uh, a, a very good example because there are certain factors there that where culture plays a big role, let's say, in the interpret interpretation of certain books and, and certain passages within this book of 1 Corinthians. For example, in 1 Corinthians, you have the problem of philosophy, the problem of worldly wisdom, and the problem of, of, of rhetoric, which in that time was that there were traveling uh, um, speakers, public speakers, rhetoricians uh, that would go around and speaking their philosophy with great eloquence, and they would gain a gathering based on that eloquence and based on their literary skills. And so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5, that he didn't come to them with superiority of speech, he didn't come to them in the words of, of human wisdom or in wisdom. He's speaking there of that type of wisdom that is associated with the cultural milieu of Corinth. And that's very important for the interpretation, let's say, of a passage of scripture like that. Another factor would be some of the feminism that was rampant in Corinthian culture. 
That's one of the reasons why uh, Paul goes into a digression on head coverings, for example, why he talks about the shame of a woman cutting her hair and uh, um, some of them shaving their head bald. Uh, well, uh, uh, come to find out that in Corinthian culture, you had this background where feminism was rampant and women would actually shave their head and protest. And so the Apostle Paul was calling for a respectable, modest lifestyle that was also present in the culture, like head coverings. Now, he didn't pull out head coverings from the biblical uh, culture. That He's not pulling out head coverings from any biblical example. He's not saying uh, that Jesus taught him to teach on head coverings. As a matter of fact, if we take the Old Testament background as our theology for for uh, head coverings and things, the Jews, co- the, the Jewish men were the ones that covered their head, not the women. Jesus covered his head to pray. So when Paul makes an appeal to nature, he is not thinking of anything like a post-enlightenment definition of nature or natural law. He's referring to customs within the culture that made sense to the people. And that's why Paul is saying, look, in this culture, it is customary that women not shave their head, number one. Number two, especially in the context of worship, that they be covered. And especially if they're going to be praying and doing doing any public speaking, they are to show modesty that was acceptable in that culture. And so those are the types of things that are important when you're looking at uh, historical issues in hermeneutics. Now, moving on to the to the next issue, the next leg in the triad of her- biblical hermeneutics, it deals with the issue of literature. So, knowing that the Bible is a composition of literature, which really speaks to the beauty and the wonder and the and just the um, the intricacy of what scripture is, the the fact that the Bible is a book that is not just just one type of book, but it's actually a collection of many books. It's a collection of many writings, many letters, and, and things like that that come to us in several genres, several types of writing and scripture. And so we saw the biblical or the canonical uh, uh, a history of, of the Bible when we talked about historical issues. And now, in the same way, we have the canonical literature of Scripture and uh, what that means. And so, in there are all sorts, sorts of genres found both in the Old and in the New Testament. There's all sorts of literature. And um, uh, uh, when you look at Scripture, you find out that there are, there are all sorts of major literary genres and all sorts of subsections beneath many of these articles. So, for example, you look at prophecy as one type of genre in Scripture, and what you find is that within the biblical prophetic literature, you have all sorts of subsections that are literally subsisting, if you would, within that genre 
There is woe. There are woe passages in scripture. There are judgment oracles closely related. There are actually, there are lawsuits, covenant lawsuits. There are passages like Hosea, for example. Hosea uh, chapter one is, is known as a, as a covenant lawsuit where God is issuing a divorce to his bride, his people. There are salvation oracles. There is satire. There are hymns. There are dreams and visions. And there are prayers. All of that under the heading of biblical prophecy. Now, these genres are found both in the Old and in the New Testament. So again, in the Old Testament, for example, the whole law has historical narrative as does much of the writings and many of the prophets. So historical narrative is just pervasive throughout all uh, of the Old Testament literature. You find it all over. Um, And then, of course, you also have, for example, the Psalms and the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. All of these have poetic literature within it, so that poetry comes into play when you're interpreting the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and even the Psalms. Much of the prophets use prophetic, apocalyptic literature, as you could imagine, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. These are rich with prophetic uh, 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 literature, prophetic genres. Likewise, if you look at the New Testament, moving to the New Testament, the New Testament likewise contains these different types of genres. It has history so that you can go to Luke, you could go to Acts, which is really a volume one and two work, on the history of the early church. As a matter of fact, Luke begins his gospel and he he begins the book of Acts sort of with a prologue where he talks about the fact that what he is writing is a detailed account. And so we can expect that Luke is gonna give us more of a detailed account of things and that he's actually gonna transcribe for us history. He's He's gonna give us history in his writings. That's really important, of course, Uh, dealing in Acts with the early church and following uh, the lives of both Peter and Paul and then focusing mainly on Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Um, Also, the New Testament contains wisdom literature. So, for example, the book of James comes in in the general epistles, what's been called the general epistles. So there you're looking at, for example, the book of Hebrews, the book of James, 1st, 2nd Peter. You're looking at Jude. Those are books that are contained within what is called the general epistles. Well, James is a is a is a, an epistle that is typically uh, called the epistle of wisdom because James is a, a, a letter doesn't move in the same type of fashion that you would expect, let's say, in the book of Romans. James is very, very, uh, 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 um, very much within the wisdom genre. It has pithy statements. It has unqualified uh, uh, transitions between contexts of scripture where it's very difficult, kind of like the Proverbs, where you don't really know how to detect how he moved from one issue to the next. Well, this is customary in what you would do in wisdom literature. Therefore, it's to be expected. Also, the Gospels are filled with parabolic literature. And the epistles are also full of technical argumentation, didactic literature, for example, like the book of Romans. Now, didactic literature has to do with that, which is more of a technical teaching style of writing, which is so prominent in Paul's writings uh, he is probably the be- the most uh, 
um, he's probably the most uh, uh, profound didactic teacher in the New Testament. So you have all of these types of genres all throughout the Old, all throughout the New Testament. So now, quickly, let's look a little bit closer at some of these, like, for example, narrative. When you look at historical narrative, what you find within the Old Testament narratives, for example, there are various types of modes of relaying historical narrative. There are stories where a story of a certain person is given to us, where an account is read off to us, where someone is bringing a report of some historical issue that transpired. So in the Old Testament, historical narrative is very important to understand the setting and the plot and the character that make up uh, make up uh, the lives of the people of God and make up uh, what is going on in people's lives at that time. Characterization also has to do with the spiritual or moral or psychological condition of the characters in the narrative of Scripture and what part they play in the story. So you have different characterization within the historical narrative. You have a description, whether it be spiritual, whether it be moral, the moral description, let's say, of Laban. Let's say the moral description of a, of a figure like Saul and the spiritual implications of that and the psychological makeup of someone like Saul or Hezekiah. Um, you have characterization very prominent in historical narrative. Also, you have another feature in the Old Testament narratives that is very important and that, that repeats itself all the time, the, the, the narratives sort of have this repetitious character to them. Uh, and finally, narratives are also full of irony and even satire, satirical uh, sort of passages that emphasize uh, one particular aspect of a person's life. Uh, for example, you have the story of Caleb who fully followed the Lord. And so you have this characterization of a man like Caleb and he's trying to God is trying to teach us a principle of life through this man's example who fully followed the Lord Joseph who remained pure and didn't give in to Potiphar's wife for example and also David who is a man after God's own heart the historical narratives are full of this type of characterization they are full of irony they're full of satire remember Elijah with the prophets of Baal and the satirical character that that historical narrative takes. So these are just some of the components that you may find within historical narrative. There are narrative accounts that are side by side that don't fully match up. And again, anytime we have something like that, we have to understand that the author has a certain aim and goal in mind as he is, as he is presenting the historical narrative. But one thing he does not have in mind is that he does not want to give an exact parallel to a previous account. So that Chronicles doesn't necessarily have to give an exact rendition of kings, etc., etc. Now, moving on to wisdom literature uh, in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature is very interesting in the Old Testament. There's all sorts of wisdom literature that's filled with poetry and this 
poetry is filled with what's known as Hebraic parallelism. Now, Hebraic parallelism is dealing with the syntax of the Hebrew language, and it deals with the constructions that we might find within the biblical text, within the biblical text. So, for example, you can have passages that deal with historical, uh, um, or excuse me, with poetic uh, uh, literature, and what you find is you can have a, a, a text of scripture that has a parallel that is meant to be similar in what it says from one sentence to the next. So for example, Proverbs chapter six, verse two, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught in the words of your mouth. So there again, you have a parallel with the words of your mouth. And the parallel is conveying the same thought, being ensnared, being caught, which is really to say the same thing in a different way, to just to draw out and emphasize the truth. This is the way Hebraic parallelism works. Also, Proverbs chapter 24, verse two is maybe another example of this similar type of parallelism. Verse two says, for their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. There you go in a similar fashion and in a similar way. You have, you have this proverb laying out for you the same result in a similar way, slightly different words, but it is parallel nonetheless. However, Sometimes the Proverbs, and the Proverbs are really keen on this, and, and they do this quite a bit, but uh, you have other aspects where there is, instead of a similar parallelism, you actually have an antithetical parallelism. So, for example, Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So you have two propositions that are set in antithesis within this Hebraic parallelism. Um, but it's not just uh, respective to uh, the book of Proverbs, for example, but you actually have this Hebraic parallelism in other books. For example, Isaiah chapter one, the book of Isaiah also contains the same uh, types of uh, literary devices, and that's what they're really known as, literary devices, uh, constructions of the Hebrew language. So here is an antithetical parallelism in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one, verse three. It says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So there is the anti the antithesis. It's 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 kind of a it's kind of a uh, uh, there's some obviously there's some hyperbole here too as well. There's there's some irony here that that look you have you have uh, you know farm animals like oxen and, and and donkeys who who are more loyal to their masters than Israel is to Yahweh, and so that is just another example of what can be deemed antithetical parallelism. 
But what other types of parallel constructions do you find uh, in uh, the poetic literature, the wisdom literature of Scripture? Well, you have another type of parallelism known as progressive parallelism, progressive parallelism. This is when lines in the passage supplement or complete the first line. So, for example, Psalm 57. Psalm 57, beginning uh, in verse 1. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So progressive parallelism is almost like a, it's almost like an intensification of the language. He begins by taking taking refuge, and he takes refuge again until destruction passes by. If you would, the uh, the liter- the the construction intensifies as it goes on. There's another example of this: Psalm ninety eight. Psalm 98, beginning in verse 2, you have the same type of phenomenon. It says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And so it's not just that the Lord reveals uh, his salvation or makes his salvation known, but then it goes so far as to say it's in the sight of the nations. It's in the sight of the nations. To add emphasis in the way that that works. Now, There is another type of parallelism or construction that's very common uh, all throughout biblical literature, and that is chiastic construction, a chiasm. When you look at at, uh, a chiasm, it's essentially mapped out with the construction A, B, and then A with an apostrophe, uh, which means it's returning to what A said only in a different way, so it adds an apostrophe to that A. That is about as simple a chiastic construction as you can find, A, B, A. And so, for example, uh, you can look at this in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 verse 14 has a chiastic construction involved. It says, wait for the Lord, and then the thought extends, be strong and let your heart take courage So it's not a parallelism, it's a chiasm, which means it comes back out to the original thought. Yes, wait for the Lord. So that is amazing there. And if you look at it in the Hebrew language, if you look at it in the the Hebrew uh, text, it's even more striking and beautiful the way that it's constructed. But um, going on from there, um, the wisdom... uh, uh, books of the Bible really are really valuable for our learning. They're valuable for our own personal practical wisdom. And the book of Ecclesiastes actually captures that very thing. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 11 just emphasizes the value of wisdom and therefore the value that wisdom literature in scripture supplies for us. Ecclesiastes 7.11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection, 
But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So you see that there is a parallel there with other types of protection that is offered in certain types of wise living, but wisdom itself is more advantageous, more advantageous than money, which can protect you. Money can purchase you a guard. Money can purchase you a bodyguard. Money can buy you insurance and protect your life to some degree. However, wisdom, knowledge, that is what will ultimately preserve your life. So moving on from the whole concept of wisdom now to a different genre. Let's say the genre that we want to focus on here is the genre of parables. Because this is something that we encounter quite a bit as we read uh, scripture. Uh, this is something that we are going to face time and time again. We're, 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 we're going to see uh, all sorts of uh, uh, scriptures where... Uh, Parables are really important and they help to unlock what is being said in the text. So we, we have to really consider what is a parable and how do you interpret? Well, let me just say, obviously, a parable is something like a, a short story, a short metaphor, a short example, uh, usually including certain characters within the plot of the parable that teach some ultimate spiritual truth. And that's really what we need to be discerning in the parable is what does this parable have to teach me? And so one of the things that we don't want to do in terms of uh, interpreting the parables is we don't want to stress the details of the parables too stringently. So, for example, if you go and look up the parable of the prodigal son, what you find there are lots and lots of details. But what we don't want to do is you don't want to begin assigning meaning to every single detail. You don't want to start assigning meaning where meaning is not meant. Um, uh, you don't want to begin to uh, adopt an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, which this, which this passage of Scripture, historically speaking, has been abused by the allegorists, going all the way back to the beginning of the allegorical school of thought, especially particularly the origin, men like that. But... The, the parable of the prodigal son is all about how God is seeking what is lost. And it comes in a triad of lost things, a trilogy where uh, Jesus is teaching about his concern for the lost sheep and that he'll go after a lost sheep. And also he teaches a parable of lost things with the lost coin and it sort of comes to a head with the prodigal son or the lost son and so that is what parables are ultimately trying to communicate they're trying to communicate one ultimate truth and meaning 
Jesus told the parable about the kingdom of God. Many of the parables are about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure hidden in the field, and for his joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has in order to buy the field and obtain the treasure. So what is the principle of that? The principle of that is not trying to teach you how to run your finances. The principle of that is not trying to teach you how to make, you know, savvy real estate maneuvers in your own business, in your own, uh, you know, uh, uh, in your own ventures of of uh, economic ventures. But what it's trying to teach you there is how valuable we should view the kingdom of God. Now, moving on from parables, we have to come to another very important uh piece of uh, of literature, and that is the literary genre of the New Testament epistle. The New Testament epistle. Epistles are formal letters written for various purposes, and they differ greatly from the other types of genre of scripture. Epistles generally follow a simple structure of opening greeting or salutation, opening statement, or some will, will some try to identify that as the opening argument of the letter, but really it's like an opening statement, a formal epistolary introduction, in other words. And then there is the main body of the letter, and then there are closing statements and farewell benedictions. So maybe the easiest way to remember, what is the general construct of an epistle? How is an epistle generally put together? It usually follows this pattern. There's an opening, there is a central body, and there is a closing. I think that's a that's a one, two, three uh, uh, sort of system of remembering how when you come when you come to a letter to an epistle. How do you look at that epistle? I suggest that you look at it like this. You have an opening. You have a central body. You have a body of literature in the middle, a main body, and then you have a closing. And most epistles follow that structure. However, some epistles do not follow that structure. Some epistles uh, don't have your standard greeting. They don't have a salutation or a benediction or grace to you from God our Father, nothing. They just open up and they begin and they launch out with almost without warning. For example, maybe uh, one of the books that is most renowned for this is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews begins with no formal introduction. Of course, we all know that in the book of Hebrews, the author is not mentioned. The author is not identified. And so Hebrews just comes right out of the gate. And it it just begins, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, this is not an introduction. This is how you open up a fiery sermon. And as a matter of fact, if you look at uh, Hebrews 13, verse 22, there the book of Hebrews is called Lagos Paraklesos or Paraklesis, which is 
the a word of exhortation. The literal Hebrew text reads tu lagu teis parakleseos, which means the word of exhortation. The author of Hebrews says, bear with my with this word of exhortation. And so the letter of Hebrews identifies itself as a letter of exhortation, which probably means it has more of a homiletical character to it. Um, now, when you look at Paul's letters, Paul's letters have all sorts of features. So epistles can contain all sorts of features within them that are important and that we need to keep our eye out for. For example, in a letter, you may have a creed, you may have a hymn, a song. And I think that's what you have in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Also, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. These have by critical scholars, often been identified as ancient hymns of the church. Also, you also have a domestic codes that uh, the Apostle Paul will sort of digress into and to give sort of a, a code, a standard of how to live your life in certain spheres like family, work, uh, culture. And so, for example, that is often introduced by a combination of two words, submission and obedience. So you have hupatasso and hupakuo. And hupakuo means to obey, whereas hupatasso means to submit. A lot of times, Paul's letters, like Ephesians 5, like Colossians 3, like Titus chapter 2, begin and start with some sort of introductory thought dealing with submission and obedience. Also, you have within the body or the corpus of this literature, the Pauline literature. Sometimes you might read a commentary and they'll say the Pauline corpus. And so what are they talking about? Well, a corpus has to do with a body of literature. So Pauline corpus means and refers to all of the writings of Paul. And in the writings of Paul, sometimes you have various slogans. You have slogans that are prominent. For example, in 1 Corinthians, you have the slogan that many of us know very well, which is, all things are lawful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify, says the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 23, speak of this very slogan. And you have others. There are other slogans that are found throughout that letter and other letters that are very important. Also, very prominent in Paul's letters is the use of both vice and virtue lists. You have vice lists, you have virtue lists. You, maybe one of the most famous ones is, is, is uh, where we have the, the, uh, the famous fruit of the Spirit uh, pointed out to us, and that is contrasted with the works of the flesh. So Galatians chapter 5, but there are many others. And these are some of the things that the epistles, and particularly dealing with Paul's uh, epistles. These are some of the things that are contained in these letters. So quickly, let me just move on next to the last genre of scripture that we'll consider. This is dealing with 
prophetic literature, the book of Revelation by far constitutes the biggest piece of New Testament literature dealing with biblical prophecy. It calls itself a prophecy. It uses the word prophecy, prophetes. Uh, it says, um, uh, it calls itself the word of this prophecy, kind of like the book of Hebrews, the word of this, uh, the word of exhortation. Well, here the word is, the, the, the Greek phrase in chapter one of Revelation, verse three is, Tus lagus tes propheteas. So the words of this prophecy. Um, also, it is also it also uses the word apocalyptic, uh, the word apocalypsis, and the word uh, uh, the, uh, the word that the, the phrase that is actually found there in. Uh, in Revelation is is Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. It is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so very important to this genre of scripture is to understand that you are in a distinct type of book that is not to be interpreted like some of the other books of scripture. It's not poetry. Prophetic literature is, 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 is not poetry. Prophetic literature is different. Prophe- prophetic literature, above all, if I could just bring in one word to encourage us, is that prophetic literature is rich with symbolism. And so the question is, is what are the symbols that this book contains? And so one of the most important things to do is to ask of any prophetic literature, what does this symbol mean? You need to see if the symbol corresponds to either a person, to a being like an angel, or or, or a demon, or the devil, to an event. Uh, Numbers and institutions are very important. Places and other aspects of these books and these passages and in this book, Revelation, places, institutions, very important, very symbolic. Uh, For example, I mean, you have the whole reference in Revelation to a new Jerusalem. You have a reference to a new temple. You have a reference to the tribes of Israel. Well, you need to ask yourself, how did the author use those phrases and what do they signify before we run off to a overemphasized literalism? We need to ask, what, if anything, do those symbols point us to? See if the symbol can be interpreted in some other book. See if the symbol can be interpreted in the book itself. So, for example... We are told that there are seven lampstands. And in chapter 1, verse 20, we are told that those seven lampstands are actually referring to seven churches. So see, Revelation there interpreted itself. See if the symbol corresponds to anything going on in the culture, the historical context. See if the symbols correspond to anything in the Old Testament. See if the symbols correspond 
to similar extra-biblical literature that might have or might find some parallel, some uh, some parallel. Uh, above everything, when you're interpreting prophetic literature, I would advise caution and humility. I would caution us to stay humble in our study of eschatology and not to be overly dogmatic about eschatology because such great minds of the Christian faith have differed over this particular issue. And when you consider all of the theological camps, there is not one camp that has the market cornered on biblical theologians. It's not just the post-millennialists that have theologians. It's not just the amillennialists that have theologians. It's not just the premillennialists that have theologians. All camps have very, very astute theologians that have taken, taken their, their time to carefully exegete and carefully interpret the text of Scripture. And so you need to see... Uh, at this point, how do these great scholars interpret some of these things? And I would say, in the midst of doing that, you should always consult a good commentary. Let me just talk about Revelation, for example, and advise a couple of commentaries. There's a good commentary by uh, Robert Mounts. It's a bit older. It's in the NICMT series, and that is going to give you a good perspective probably more along a millennial perspective. Likewise, you have George Ladd and his work in the book of Revelation, which is very important for historical premillennialism. And Grant Osborne has another uh, book on Revelation that's also very scholarly, written at a very high level. You also have others like G.K. Beale, written from more of an amillennial perspective. Some had hailed G.K. Beale's book in the... Uh, in the New International Greek Testament Commentary, the, NI, the NIGTC, some have hailed that uh, commentary on Revelation as one of the best that's ever been written. So you have to sort of scan the whole uh, 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 you know, uh, type of uh, spectrum of theology and exegesis and get a full rounded perspective on how to interpret prophetic literature and probably most of all how to interpret the book of Revelation in light of everything else that has come down the prophetic line. So these are some of the literary genres. It's very important, uh, sort of summing up where we've been. It's very important to know that both in the Old and in the New Testament, you have historical narrative, you have wisdom literature, you have poetry, you have uh, um, po you have prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. In the New Testament, you have some unique aspects in that. In the New Testament, you have such things as parables that need to be carefully interpreted, always teaching some great truth. You have the epistles, which are so foundational to biblical to our biblical understanding that need to be carefully exegeted in light of their historical context, in light of their, their, their structure uh, of opening and body and closing. Uh, when you look at the overall structure of an epistle, it's going to help you to outline the book, to outline the argument, and to understand 
the authorial intent, which is ultimately the trick of all interpretation. What is the authorial intent of that book? And then once we've done our authorial intent, once we've done our exegesis, then we can start connecting the dots as good theologians and biblical theologians and ask the question, where does this book fit in in God's plan? What contributions has this book made to the overall theological uh, plan of God construct that we have in biblical theology? And uh, we'll talk much more about that in the days to come. Uh, hopefully this has been helpful to you. Hopefully you'll take some of these principles as a starting point where you can launch out into a study of biblical hermeneutics.